Hey, good morning. So Jesus had four brothers. The names of Jesus' younger brothers are James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And it sounds like they were trying to go for the all J's for a while there, because Jesus, James, Joseph, Judas, but then for some reason they went with Simon. According to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, Jesus' brother James was sentenced to death by the high priest at that time by stoning. Now, his body would have been placed in a tomb, and after a couple of years, the, traditionally the bones of James would have been removed and placed into an ossuary. Now, an ossuary is also called a bone box. It's a limestone box, and they found hundreds of these dating back to the first century. Now, this one in particular has an inscription on it. Show the next slide. So maybe one of you can translate that inscription for me. All right, it's a dead language. It's ancient Aramaic. But here is the, the translation that on um, this ossuary that was found in 2002. It says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Definitely dated to the first century. Three very common names from that time. James, Joseph, and Jesus. Common names. What's uncommon is on, on, on all of these inscriptions, you'll have the name of the deceased and the name of the father. Very unusual to have an appellation on there such as brother of Jesus. It indicates there's something very significant about that name, Jesus. Sometimes names can be significant. And today, if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we're on the Third Commandment, and it does have to do with the name of God. Now, we looked at the, the First Commandment, and that has to do with the sovereignty of God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so we say that uh, God is sovereign in the sense that he is our master, he is our ruler, he is our king, he is in charge, he's the boss, he's, he's the papa, as I like to say. So, so we rededicated ourselves right, to the sovereignty of God. And then last week, we were looking at the second commandment where God says, don't try to make a graven image or a carved image of me. That has to do with the transcendency of God. He is transcendent, uncreated spirit. He's invisible. We are not to attempt to capture our transcendent God in some kind of an image. All of these first commandments have to do with God himself. And then we get into interrelational matters in the later commandments. I'm going to take them a little bit out of order, by the way, because next Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so the sixth commandment has to do with the sanctity of human life. So we'll be doing, dealing with that next Sunday. But here's the, the third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. God says, you must not misuse the name, misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. The underlying doctrine of this commandment is the majesty and the holiness of the name of God. We may not think about that a lot, but we're going to think about it today and explore it, and I want to use four questions to do so. And the first question is this, what does it mean to say that God is holy? We, we, we want to look at that because God's name is holy because God is holy. So what does it mean when we say that God is holy? The word holy means to be separate, set apart, to be distinct from. And God is holy in two ways. First, he is ontologically holy. Now, ontology has to do with the study of being. And so when we say God is ontologically holy, we mean as a being, he is separate from us, he's different, and he is distinct. 
Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? Again, the word for this is transcendence. We camped out on this last Sunday. I'm not going to say a whole lot about that today because that's not the holiness we're talking about today. God is ontologically holy, but the second sense in which the Bible portrays God as holy is in the sense that he is set apart or separate from sin. He is morally and ethically holy. He does not sin. He cannot sin. He cannot be tempted by sin. And his posture towards sin is wrath. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished indefinitely. And it is in this sense that God imposes upon his people Israel that they are to be holy. You must be holy, Leviticus 20, 26, because I, the Lord, am holy. So he calls his people to be holy. If we were to find ourselves suddenly in the presence of our holy God, how might we react? We would probably react very similar to the prophet Isaiah when he had a vision of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then here was his response. Isaiah said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. And apparently to come into the presence of the holiness of God is to all of a sudden become acutely aware of one's unholiness, of one's sinfulness. Because now you've got that perfect standard of moral ethical purity to compare ourselves to. I was thinking about this and trying to come up with an analogy, and I thought of a, a novel that I read a few years ago. I think it was Timeline by Michael Crichton. And the protagonist was a history professor at a university. He was a professor of medieval history, and he had the ability to do time travel, so he traveled back to the, to the Middle Ages in Europe, the 14th century. And he kind of got stuck there. And so some of his students traveled back in time to try and rescue him, get him unstuck. So they dressed in period-specific clothing before they traveled back to 14th century medieval Europe. But they still stood out when they got there. And the reason they still stood out was because of how clean they were. Clean they were. They, and people looked at them and they said, why are these people almost supernaturally clean? Because people in the Middle Ages, you know, did not bathe as much as we do. We have records of royals who only bathed two times per year back, back during those times. So they looked at them. They saw their clothes were clean. They didn't have dirt on them. They didn't have lice and fleas, and they didn't stink. And I got to thinking about that. What if you kind of reverse that? And you could take some folks from the, the Middle Ages, the 14th century Europe, and transport them here to the 21st century, put them in a setting like this, even if they were in our kind of clothing, the right style, how long would it take for them to realize, look around and say, wow, I don't fit in here because these people are all so clean. I imagine the folks sitting around them would realize it very quickly. But they would say, man, I am dirty, I have fleas, I have lice, and I stink compared to these people. Well, th I think that's analogous to what happens when we get into the presence of a perfectly holy God. All we've had to compare ourselves to for all of our lives is other people like us, other sinful people in a sinful fallen world. But if we were to come into the presence of God, we would all of a sudden be overwhelmed.
with our uncleanness, our sinfulness. God is holy in the sense he is set apart and separate from sin. All right, second question. So why is God's name holy? Because God is holy. And people thought about names a little bit differently in Bible times than we do today. Now, for instance, when we're naming our children, sometimes we're a little arbitrary about that. We might name a child after a family member, or we might just pick a name because we like the way it sounds. I, for the longest time, tried to get my kids to name one of my four granddaughters after one of my favorite characters in a novel, my favorite novel, Cosette. Isn't that a pretty name? Anybody know anybody named Cosette? And I, I tried to get them to name one of their daughters that. I always thought that for a nickname, you could call her Cozy. Come on, Cozy Jones, come on over here. But would they listen to me? No, they would not listen to me. But I digress. But names back in, in Bible times often conveyed or were meant to convey something about the character and the essence or the mission of that person. Let me give you a couple of examples. The Old Testament name Joshua, the New Testament equivalent is Jesus. Those names mean salvation is of the Lord, which communicates the mission of those two people. The name Abram, we're reading about Abram in the Old Testament, means exalted father. His name was changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Of course, Abraham is the father of a multitude, all of those who are believers. The name Jacob literally means deceiver. Now, if you're reading in the one-year Bible like I am, you're reading about Jacob right now. And you know from his story, he is a deceiver. He was a deceiver. Now, after he had his struggle with God, his name was changed to Israel, which means he who struggles with God. So that was, they, they took their names in that kind of a sense, and the way you treated someone's name was how you were treating that person themselves. Now, speaking of getting into the Wayback Machine, I'm going to refer to a movie, 1967 movie called In the Heat of the Night. All right, some of you will have seen this movie, In the Heat of the Night. And it's a classic movie, a black police detective named Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, clashes with a racist police force in Sparta, Mississippi, over a murder case. In one pivotal scene, white police chief Bill Gillespie repeatedly disrespects Virgil Tibbs by calling him by his first name, Virgil, 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 repeatedly. To insult Tibbs further, Gillespie asks, what do they call you back in Philadelphia, where you come from? And he responded, they call me what? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Classic line. It's worth looking up on YouTube if you haven't seen that clip to see how Sidney Poitier delivers it. I tried to get it up here. We couldn't get a good clip of it. But what he was saying was, they treat me with respect. The respect that I am due by, by using my proper name. The name you should be using right now, you should be using a name of respect. And that's the idea with God. God says, I want you to treat my name with respect. The psalmist writes in Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Some of us are thinking of a chorus right now. Psalms 111.9, holy and awesome is his name. Deuteronomy 28, revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Matthew 6.9, our Father in heaven, Jesus says, may your name be kept 
holy. And we keep his name holy by the way we act and live and speak. So God's name, the idea here is it stands for the very person of God himself. Theologian G.D. Boardman writes, the name of God signifies his nature, attributes, character, authority, his purposes and methods, his providence, his words and institution, his truth, his kingdom. In short, all that God is and all that God says, all that God does, all that God bids. In other words, they call me Mr. God. And I belabor these two points because unless we understand this and grasp this and get our minds around it, I don't think we're going to keep the third commandment. We're not going to be that serious about keeping the third commandment unless we understand God is holy, and because God is holy, His name is holy. Treat it that way. Third question, what counts as God's name? What counts as God's name? Okay, so... The name that God used most often for himself in the Old Testament is Yahweh, used 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra means four, grammaton means letters, four letters, four Hebrew letters transliterated into English, Y-H-W-H. Ancient Hebrew was written with all consonants and no vowels. So we're not exactly sure how some of the words are pronounced. Vowel points were added later by scribes. Most scholars today, as I read, and I, I'm, I'm communicating to you things that maybe make me sound smart, but I'm not. I've just done some research. Most scholars today believe the proper pronunciation is Yahweh. Jehovah is an alternative pronunciation. It kind of depends on whether you use Latin to transliterate these letters or not. And I'm not going to get into all the details. It's very technical. You can Google it if you're interested and read it for yourselves. As far as I can tell, Yahweh, Jehovah, both of those are legitimate pronunciations of Y-H-W-H. You say 6,000 times in the Old Testament, I've never read that name once. It's because typically, as the translators of our English Bibles translate that L-O-R-D in all capital letters. So if you're reading along in your Bible and you see L-O-R-D in the Old Testament in all capital letters, you're probably looking at the name Yahweh. The Jews were so careful that they did not want to break this third commandment, they, they often they would not use the word Yahweh at all just to make sure they weren't breaking that commandment. Now, that may be going a little bit too far. Cottrell writes, theologian Jack Cottrell, any name or word or designation that we use to refer to or to represent God, whatever term which, as we use it, causes others to think of God must not be used in vain. In vain means in such a way that detracts from God's holiness. This includes all words that represent the divine being in our ordinary conversations. For example, God, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus, and Christ. The name of God, Yahweh, encompasses all three persons of what we call the Godhead or the Trinity. Yahweh is God the Father. He is God the Son. He is God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, go and baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice that's name singular, not plural. He didn't say the names of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in the name of. That's one God 
Three persons. That's the mystery of the Trinity. Do not ask me to explain that. Matthew chapter 28, 19. Baptize them into the name. In the New Covenant, New Testament era that we live in as Christians, we're not Old Testament Jews, we're New Testament Christians, the focus is definitely upon the name of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. That's where the focus is. Forgiveness is in the name of Jesus. The power is in the name of Jesus. Demons cast out in the name of Jesus. Eternal life promised in the name of Jesus. If you do not use the threefold formula in baptism, then they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so final question. What is taking God's name in vain? What is taking God's name in vain? To take God's name in vain means to use it in an ineffective, false, empty, and disrespectful way. I'm going to suggest three applications of this. Number one is perjury. This is how it was used in the Old Testament. God enjoined on them not to commit perjury. Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. So if, we, if I'm lying and I say I swear to God, I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying, that, that would be breaking this commandment. That's perjury. Of course, Jesus said, don't, don't swear by God's name at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that's what we want to do. The second way, and probably the most common way that this commandment is broken in our day, is through profanity. Uh, to profane something is to take that which is holy and make it common, or to use God's name as a swear word. So let me go over some of the ways that this would happen, that this does happen. Uh, when we say, my God, by God, good God, oh God, OMG, if we text OMG, we know that means, oh my God, that is breaking the third commandment. Of course, GD, you know what that stands for, a curse in God's name. For God's sake, great God Almighty, only God knows, careless uses of the name of God. Of course, this applies to the name of Jesus as well. Jesus Christ. Jesus H. Christ. For Christ's sake. Uh, it applies to the profane use of the word Lord. Lord. Oh, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Lord God. Good Lord. Oh, Lordy. Awful quiet out there. Any repenting going on? I, 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 say, good, I say good Lord all the time. And when I did the research and, and delved into this, I said, you know what? I am breaking this commandment. And I, I'm intentionally now focusing uh, on how I use my words. What about damn and hell? Both words refer to something that is the exclusive prerogative of God, namely eternal judgment. Therefore, any use of these terms brings God into the picture by implication. A light and flippant use of the word damn and hell is a mockery of God's judgment and is thus a mockery of the power and person of God. I mean, you might say, well, you know, it's, it's, it may be a sin. It's not the most serious sin. Maybe we, maybe we think that. I hear that. Maybe it's not. But who are we to say? Exodus 27, God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You know what the penalty was for blaspheming the name of God in the Old Testament? Death. 
Maybe God takes some things more seriously than we take. In the New Testament, Christians who blasphemed may have been excommunicated from the church. We've got this in 1 Timothy 1.20. Paul speaks of two men. He says, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That is language used of those who were excommunicated from the church. A third way in which this commandment is broken is hypocrisy. Is hypocrisy. To take upon ourselves the family name of Christ. Christian means to belong to Christ and then live a deliberate, sinful lifestyle. I heard about a man who was driving and had a tailgater on his bumper. You never had somebody ride on your bumper a tailgater? And he was driving. He came up to an intersection. The light turned yellow, so he did the right thing. He slowed down, came to a stop instead of trying to beat the red light. Well, the tailgater wasn't happy. Flew into a rage, started leaning on his horn, shouting, yelling, cursing, flipping him off. All of a sudden, the tailgater hears a knock on his window. And he looks over, and there's a police officer. And the police officer says, get out of the car. He got out of the car, handcuffed him, arrested him, took him downtown, booked him, fingerprinted him, put him in a holding cell. Two hours later, he came an administrative assistant, brought him back out. There was the arresting officer, gave him back his wallet and everything. I'm sorry for the misunderstanding. He said, here's what happened. He said, I saw you tailgating that car. I, I saw that you were honking and that you were cursing and that you were flipping him off. And then he said, I saw in your, you had a bumper sticker that said, what would Jesus do? And you had another bumper sticker that said, follow me to Sunday school. And you had a choose life license plate holder. And you had a chrome Christian fish symbol on the back of your car. He said, so naturally I assumed the car was stolen. I wear a polo almost every day to work. It says Vero Christian Church on it. And I'm consciously aware of that. It happens all the time. I'm going to Publix or something. They say, oh, Vero Christian Church, you, you have staff there or whatever. Yeah, that people are watching. God chastised the Israelites in Jeremiah 34, 15. He said, you made a covenant before me at the house that bears my name, but you have changed your minds and profaned my name. Jesus called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Mark 7, 6. Isaiah told about you who pretend to be someone you're not. He wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Paul writes in Romans 2, 23, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. One of the most common criticisms of the church is who's in the church, hypocrites in the church. 1 Peter 1.16, Peter applies this to the Christians and says, you must be holy. I, the Lord, am holy. We're called to be holy. 2 Timothy 2.19, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Jesus said, if your arm offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Better to go into heaven with one arm and one eye than to go into hell with two arms and two eyes. In other words, be very serious about eradicating sin from our lives. We all have sins that we struggle with, besetting sins that we constantly struggle with. We need the Holy Spirit's help. But I like what Mother Teresa said, and I've mentioned this before. She said, how do you stay close to God? She said, spend one hour a day with God and don't do anything you know is wrong. There's always a way to be obedient to God and keep his commandments. There's always a way. Now I want to show you a picture here as we close. And I'm going to ask you, when we, as we look at this picture, what's going on here. What are these folks doing right now? They are praying. 
they're praying. Who are they praying for? Damar Hamlin. If you don't know what's going on here, you know, you don't have a television set. So he was injured. They bowed on that field and prayed for him. And then over the last few weeks, there's been an outpouring of prayer for him. So I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about that. Before that happened, as those players are on the field and they're playing the game, they were, there were some of them who probably were taking the Lord's name in vain in their speech. Not a lot of, they're not choir boys out there, as a rule, playing NFL football. But when life got serious, they started calling on the name of the Lord. And I thought, you know, when we're playing games, when people are playing games, tend to use the Lord's name in one way. But when life gets serious, then we start using the Lord's name the right way. We call on the name of the Lord for life. We call on the name of the Lord for power. We call on the name of the Lord for help. Call on the name of the Lord for hope. We use the Lord's name the way it's supposed to be used when we put away games and we get serious about life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, the name of Jesus is above all names, but sometimes we claim your name and live in willful continuing sin. We repent. Convict our spirits of the offense that we cause your Holy Spirit by our words and behavior and attitudes. Help us to humble ourselves before you so that we can speak the name of Jesus, not as a curse word, but as a blessing. We will speak the name of Jesus over every heart and mind, declaring hope and freedom and life. We shout Jesus from the mountains, in the streets, in the darkness, and over every enemy and addiction. Your name is power, healing, and life because you are power, healing, and life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.